Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together to open the Word of God and to look into our uh, mutual salvation, which is provided in Christ, which is the reason for our fellowship with one another and with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us these epistles, which lay out what's important in the church. May we have our doctrine informed by what you've spoken once for all, and may our practice conform to what you've said and bring honor and glory to your name. And may we live by your grace and power as we encourage one another in love and good works. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, continuing on here, we did verse 3. We were working well through verse 4, and... Um, the whole point was, I'll read this whole section, including verse 3, and it has to do with doctrine, okay? 1 Timothy 6, 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, <clears throat> abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. We suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So we were talking about that, and these are some of the fruits of bad doctrine and false teaching and those who would promote their own interests and they have nothing to do. Godliness, Eusebia, means it can be translated piety in a, in, a, in a good sense of the word. That would be conforming to, as God, by God's grace, further conformed to the image of Christ. I mentioned last week, we have a protesis, a potesis uh, layout here. The if is stated in verse 3 clearly. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, the then part begins at the verse 4 we mentioned. It's implied, not stated. Then implied. Apotasis, he's conceited, understands nothing. His interest is in word fights, abusive language, strife, so on and so forth. <clears throat> the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the unity of the faith are all nurtured by belief that's grounded in the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And as I was mentioning last week, we have the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. That means that we have a common ground to go back to so that we don't have to have word fights based on who has the strongest personality, who, whoever uh, is more abusive or who makes you pay a price if you don't agree with. We're in 1 Timothy 6, 4 and 5. But we have the faith once for all handed down to the saints, and the truth of God's word can be known and advocated by the most quiet, calm saint. You don't have to be a professional boxer to have influence in the church. You don't have to be mean and nasty to have influence in church. The power is in the truth of the word of God, not the personality of the teacher. So that uh, allows for every gift to be important, every person to be heard, and every idea tested in light of scripture. So only the authority of scripture gives us something that's a baseline that will be the same throughout church history, how long, however long it goes until the rapture. And also, 
having the scriptures translated into common vernacular, which was the principle of the Reformation, gives access to the scriptures to people in whatever country they're in, because they have it in their own language, their own vernacular. And therefore, the priesthood of every believer becomes not just a theory, but something that can be practiced. Furthermore, every believer has direct access by the Holy Spirit to the throne of grace where Christ sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews, Psalm 110, verse 1. So to have forgiveness of sins and have our prayers heard, have our concerns go to God, we don't need a human intermediary that we have to go to. Every member attached to the head. Okay? So those are the principles I've been teaching, and they're necessary in order to define the church. And it comes out of Acts 20, 1 and 2 Timothy. So that's why we're here. This is an expansion because Timothy also is in Ephesus, as where Paul had previously spoken to the Ephesian elders. He's now in prison in Rome. So the then part is, if you don't have sound doctrine and sound words that are from the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, then, hypothesis, here's what you get. Morbid interest in controversial matters. Controversial questions. You know what people want to know more than anything else? Things the Bible doesn't reveal. If I just go by the questions I get. They want to know something the Bible doesn't reveal. I'm not under obligation to teach what the Bible doesn't reveal. We need to know what is revealed. And it will take us the rest of our life to work on that. <clears throat> yeah, it's not revealed because we don't need to know. Good point. Someone said there's a reason it's not revealed. Now, um, to that end... I have here Galatians 5, 22 to 23. There's the fruit of the Spirit is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of the people of God who have a vital relationship with the head, Jesus Christ, because they're born of God. So let, go ahead and turn there, Galatians 5. 22 and 23, and I'll read those to you. That's where we were last week. We got up to that point and hadn't read it yet. <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now notice it says such things. doesn't mean this is a comprehensive list of every virtue that may show up through the Spirit. There are others, but this is what it looks like. Now, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness is not constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. Disputes about words, word fights, envy, strife, abusive language. You can see a very stark and obvious contrast between the fruit of bad doctrine that doesn't come from the Lord Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit. The difference is this. The very Holy Spirit who causes those who are regenerate through believing the gospel, we're born of God, indwelt by the Spirit, that uh, fruit of the Spirit is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. And the Scriptures gives us what is called in verse 3, the words of the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't mean just the red letters. Because the Jesus didn't write his own book. His apostles and prophets wrote the New Testament. 
But these are always, this is where the unity of the faith comes. In Ephesians, to we all attain to the unity of the faith, is sound doctrine, relationship with Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the things that are from God that build up the body of Christ and bring edification and so on. That's what the church looks like gathered together. These things are what happens when those who are not grounded in the Lord and his word, but want to have power in an organization or institution, and they're going to have a fight until they're in control. That's what it boils down to. I'll be in control, I'll get my way, and therefore, let's have the fight. I think I'll win. That's their motive. Teaching sound doctrine doesn't enter. Does that make sense? So the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Everything he does is of benefit to everyone who knows the Lord, including inspiring the doctrines that are taught in the scriptures. So these fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, there's no law against that. Somebody's not going to make a law against you being kind to each other. There'll be none of that in this church. No, we don't want to do that, right? But that brings me to the reason I so appreciate your patience allowing me to do this. Thank you. Because I need to get these ideas critiqued before publishing uh, anything or writing. The reason for this is that I believe it's impossible for the institution, institutional church to ever be this. This, I mean Galatians. It will always be this. Friction of men and deprived mind. I don't believe the institutional church is the body of Christ. And I don't believe anyone who wrote the New Testament advocated creating an institutional church that creates a system of self-perpetuation. And the institutional church arose not in the time of the apostles, but later in church history, which is even admitted by the people who are the strongest advocates of the institutional church. They admit it came later whether you start with Constantine or Augustine or somewhere, it wasn't from Christ and his apostles. Yes. Yeah, well said, Bob. Uh, evidence of that that we've seen, again, going back to Bethel Seminary, Bob has just given us the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians starting in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 22. But if you look at chapter 5, verse 20, you look at the deeds of the flesh. The second one that's listed there is sorcery, and that comes the, from the Greek term pharmakeia, which is where we get the term pharmacy. And originally what the, the Greeks did and the ancients did is they would try to get themselves in an induced altered state of consciousness yep, yep. using drugs so that they could contact the spirit realm. So the big problem with sorcery is anytime you try to put yourself in an altered state of consciousness, you're engaged in a deed of the flesh. Sorcery. At Bethel Seminary, Bob had stood against a woman named Carla Dahl who was teaching Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is what they call a divine reading, where you use the Bible as a mantra. You read it over and over and over. And so you're trying to get your mind in an altered state of consciousness, this time not using drugs, but using the Bible like a Ouija board. So isn't it interesting, Carla Dahl that Bob stood against was teaching people to engage in the deeds of the flesh, sorcery, and she didn't know it. And the vast majority of the, the people that were teaching at the seminary didn't realize it. But they were literally teaching students sorcery, deeds of the flesh, while lying to the public saying, we're going to teach you to be people that are going to have the fruit of the Spirit. That's how deceived the seminaries and the church, the institutional church, as Bob is saying, really is. Yes, and um, my thesis, which you can critique, please do, my thesis is this. The reason for the institutional church 
It's devised by people that may well have been well-meaning, but their intent is that the church is perpetuated through the children of Christians. And they want a system that guarantees their children are Christians and that their children stay in the church. So within two or three generations, the descendants of Christians are in charge. The institution that's better than any other institution that's ever arisen to keep the children of Christians in the church is Roman Catholicism. And they are the most wicked apostate group you're ever going to find. And how do they keep all their children in there? Because of guilt, because of uh, processes they create, jump through the hoops, do this, do this, listen to us. You pay a price, you lose your friends, you lose your family, you won't be at anybody's birthday party. You're on the outs if you don't stay with the system. And that's gone for centuries and centuries and centuries until they have a couple billion people in bondage. And if someone becomes part of the body of Christ through conversion, the Roman Catholic Church really has no place for them. They're in trouble. Because now they're attached directly to the head. They don't need an intermediary. And so does that make sense? Now, I have here a brought show and tell. Do you mind? <laughs> I've been mentioning this book. This book here, The Torch of the Testimony, is kind of where I got the inspiration decades ago. There was a little bookstore book in South Minneapolis when I was at North Central Bible College called Kingsway. And the proprietor of that saw me going through the books, and he says, Look at this book right here. He had it in his bookstore. 1965, first published October 1965 in Bombay, India. John W. Kennedy was a missionary from Britain and was in India, which was a British colony in the past. And his thesis is that the church is not an institution. It's a fellowship of believers who are called out. And when you get to the last two chapters, I've I've finished this now, i got every page marked up. Um, He says that some of the best material in the New Testament that defines the church is found in Acts chapter 20 and 1 and 2 Timothy, which is where we are right now. Let me just give you a few excerpts. This, by the way, is written in British... India version of British English, which has passive verbs throughout. He's talking about the evangelist here. Let me start with this. He says, page 236, furthermore, the revival of Pentecost led to the establishment of the church. That's what I claim. And I've been teaching that. We do not, in the New Testament, read of any such revival within a church already established. His point is revivalism, which is what American Christianity is about, is an invention of man. And he says we read of no revival in the New Testament of a church already established. That's something we came up with because we think America is a Christian country. And so we're always looking for a revival. But what you revive is institutions which are already apostate. And within a year or two, they'll be right back to what they were, only worse. That uh, Ms. Dahl that you mentioned, I had no idea who she was. I sat when she was introduced as next fall was going to start being a teacher. I didn't even know they'd hired her. I was appalled. I wrote a letter to the provost protesting that they bring this stuff into the church, into the seminary. She, I didn't know. He was, it's the only time I ever saw him mad. Even when Eric and I confronted him, he wasn't mad. He always kept his cool. You'd tell him something that was, this, why is this stuff going on? He'd say, so you're saying, and he'd repeat what you just told him. 
never do anything, Bob. But at least he know he repeated what you told him. He was mad. I questioned. I didn't know she was royalty, a descendant of the top people in Baptist General Conference, teaching paganism in the name of being an evangelical, alter state of consciousness type stuff, and so on. Or and then determinism. If you came from the wrong family, then you had big problems. So the, there's no revival of a previously existing church. What Paul was telling Timothy, this is a previously existing church that was established in Paul's ministry in Asia Minor. Paul now is in prison in Rome. Timothy's a young man who's there and there's some elders that's already gone astray in Paul's lifetime. This is how you straighten it out. You correct the air in the church. You don't call in an evangelist. That's what Kennedy's saying. <clears throat> yes, B brother. Um, when, when you talk about institutional church, I'm wondering, um, there are, I think, individual churches that may be part of a denomination. They have a good pastor. Is it too... Is, it too, is that on? Yeah, is, keep it close. Okay. Is it possibly too broad a brush to say, you know, Baptists are part of institutional... Presbyterians are all part of institutional church. Are there individual exceptions to that that's a very good question. If the institution will be around a lot longer than those people you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Okay. What I've heard from just people having spoken, went back when I used to travel and preach, I went to Barbados. What I've witnessed, and many, many others, Kennedy here is a better expert than I'll ever be, God's remnant is in the institution, but it's not the institution. Okay. Because okay. that's about all there is. My, one of the most common phone calls or emails I've gotten since we've been publishing critical issues, especially in the last 15, 20 years, is we had a pastor who was preaching the truth and teaching the word of God, and then he retired, and now all this other stuff came in. So the institution will uh, depend on the personality, the teaching, and the talents of a given pastor. And if you have a pastor within the institution who is really teaching solid and promoting things that would feed and nurture the remnant that's born of God, or maybe it's the majority in, the, in a small group, that will thrive and be more akin to what the church is. But the institution doesn't go away, okay? Because that's a bigger thing. And the institution, institutions, we should know this just from politics. Institutions exist to promote the growth, the wealth, and the power of the institution. Anyone in the institution that doesn't contribute to those ends will be punished. And we see that in politics. If you don't go along with making whatever it is bigger, more powerful, <coughs> you'll be punished and marginalized. Yes? Yes, I'd, I'd like to um, <clears throat> suggest that uh, talking about revival, Yes. I'd like to refer to uh, for some ser sermons that people would li should listen to um, and might challenge this, what you're saying a little bit. Both are by Charles Spurgeon. Okay. One is called Revival Work, Revival Work, and the other one is called Revival, The Need of the Church. And another, uh, some of the points that you had made about um, a revival in today's church in the New Testament church, you might want to listen to Seeking the Spirit by um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I think it, it, it addresses, without dragging this out, it might 
address some of the comments that you made. So I'd okay, just like to highly, highly suggest those. Fair enough. I've even seen Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones were born-again Christians who taught the truth. The ministry of just about anybody is within the institution. Go ahead. Our Lord knows I want you to continue on with your teaching, but I would say this. Yesterday I was on, you know, on the street, and it was a really good thing. Uh, talking with a guy, kind of find out this guy was an absolute reborn Christian. I could tell. He asked yeah. if there's anything I could pray for. And I thought to myself, no, there's church right there. I mean, I didn't know the guy. He didn't know me. And then we were just very close in the word. I thought, that's great. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm struggling with the idea that there is order even within this place. There is a pastor. There are elders. And that's not an organization. That's just something that's biblical to have. And yet... Uh, I need a quick clarification, if possible, then I really would like to continue on with your teaching about the priesthood of all believers. Uh, when we have these certain things as listed in the uh, critical issues commentary. Keep it close, keep things. it close. I'm not hearing you. There you go. Right, right there. Okay, very good. Uh, a clarification on the. Uh, that this does not mean. Although uh, I've heard it said that we can tell a pope when we have the word, we can tell the pope to sit in a corner. This does not mean that. Uh, uh, I just need some clarification there. Is are we we can't be individuals about just going around do whatever we want when we want to do it. We have a certain order. Uh, yes, we have a certain order. So John Kennedy addresses that. The priesthood of every believer is an important doctrine, and I've written about that. And I don't think you can refute it out of scripture. But there are elders and deacons. That's the only uh, offices, if you want to call it that addressed in the New Testament. Eric has talked about that. Okay? Elders are the people Paul's writing to with Timothy. The elders. And one of the things that happened even in Paul's day was elders went astray. And then they had to deal with that. But the elders are very much biblical. But there's no extra local translocal authorities other than Christ and his apostles. So the institution always has various layers of authority that will go beyond the local church. And so I grew up in the Methodist church. Wesley just took the Anglican. He never left the Anglican church. The Anglican church was modeled after Rome minus the Pope. Okay, so in the Methodist church, which I grew up in, was very, very liberal. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. They believed in the social gospel. Be nice, be good, that's all God expects of you. Now, be a good citizen. However, if you wanted to get anything done, you had to go to the district superintendent. If you had a problem there, you had to go to the bishop. They had a bishop over every state. Okay, so the little Methodist church in Archer, Iowa, had a bishop in Des Moines. Now, here's the problem. There are no bishops in the Bible. It's a contrivance of man. So even the great revivalists, and I appreciate you bringing that out, end up in these institutions that have bishops. And, and all of this stuff is still sitting there waiting for the great preacher to get old and die so the liberals can come in and take over, which they always do. It may be two generations or one generation or three generations, but what great, glorious institution established hundreds of years ago still stands grounded in the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, and the fruit and work of the Spirit? Is it Harvard? Oxford, um, Yale, is it uh, traditional Presbyterianism? No. Is it the Methodist Church? No. Finney was a heretic, and he was a blatant Pelagian heretic, and he's considered the greatest revivalist. And he was a blasphemous heretic who denied the grace of God and salvation. There's no miracle, there's no work of revival that's beyond the powers of nature. You're just tapping into nature. I've written about Finney. So my point is this. 
It's not that God doesn't have his remnant scattered throughout every institution there is. You may go into a massive institutional church and be able to gather together a dozen people who love Jesus Christ who want to study the Bible. I've seen that. I've been invited to go speak to such persons. I was invited to go to uh, the island of Barbados, which was officially divided up territorially by the Brits under the Anglican Church. They built cathedrals, or whatever they called them, in each province, and then it was under the Church of England. And they had a, whatever they called them. Now within that, the Nazarenes had come in with missionaries, and they had a revival. But then by the time I met the lovely, beautiful, warm Christian brothers and sisters in Barbados, they, the Nazarenes have gone into purpose-driven and everything else. It, the declension, let me, see, this is Kennedy's point. Declension is always what happens. Do you know what declension means? Okay. If you, in, in gr grammar, if you do a declension of a verb, you're breaking it down. And in, in this context, it means breaking down going down. Now they've talked about that too in, in American church history called the downgrade controversy. And so you have a revival to reverse the downgrade. But what's not addressed is the biblical definition of the church. However great a great preacher is, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the church is never anything but born-again Christians attached to the head. Now, in uh, a church like in Ephesus, Timothy could still identify who the false teachers were, and Paul could deal with it, and they could be removed from being elders, and you could get down to what is truly from God. But the true church that is attached to the head does not exist through the children and grandchildren of Christians. It exists only through converts. The children of Christians may be converts. They may not. There is no promise ever given, even in, in the Bible, that the children of Christians will always be born-again Christians if the parents just do it right. If somebody has such a promise, I'd like to see what it is and where it is. There is none. You know, do we know who the elect are? Uh, I realize some people don't believe there are any elect, which is about it's so utterly unbiblical. I don't know how you can say that, but that's what some people believe. There are no elect. There are only volunteers. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I don't know who the elect are that I haven't already come to Christ and confess him. Is that right? Amongst our children, some will come to Christ, some will not. In some cases, there are families where every one of the children come to Christ. That's a wonderful blessing. If that happened for you, I promise you one thing. God did it. You didn't. Amen. Amen. Is that too bold? <laughs> okay. Now, we would like to take credit when they're serving the Lord and defect and blame when they don't. But the fact is, the children, but guess what? Who runs the institutions? The children of Christians. The descendants. And if they want to prove their uh, pedigree, that's what they pull out. That's what happened with Carla Dahl. Teaching utter paganism, but put in charge of the children of people in the Baptist General Council because of her pedigree. Nothing Christian about the teaching that I could find. It was so utterly pagan, it was shocking. Now, um, John Kennedy, who in India, in the late, mid 20th century, saw all of this and wrote an entire book about it, Torch of the Testimony. Let me read, read some more of this. He talks about evangelists. He says evangelism may be revival has begotten that which has not 
the strength to beget. Now, again, this is British English filtered through India. Let me, I've had a hard time reading it at first, but I finally got into it. Evangelism, he says, or maybe revival, has begotten, brought to pass, that which is not the strength to beget. So you have a revival based on the gospel. It begets people who are born of God. Those do not have the strength to beget. They only have Christ they had in the gospel. That's what he's saying there. Redemption has not been followed by the church. The result is spiritual barrenness. The reason they bring evangelists to churches is because they see the spiritual barrenness in the institution. But in the revivals of that, that are gone on in that case, true converts happen and people bear fruit, but the institution still remains the institution. And the northeast part of the United States where they had the earliest and biggest and most profound revivals became known as the burnt over zone. You couldn't get anybody to go to church. It's so liberal, so barren, and so devoid of the life of Christ. Yeah, Finney, the burned over area. That's what, that's what happened. So North, where's, the, where's all the uh, liberal liberalism? Where's its stronghold in America besides California? Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah, we're the California of the Midwest here. And the Northeast, the Northeast. Go ahead, Eric. I was just going to mention, um, if we use the term revival in the sense of repentance for the true people of God who are regenerate, that would be one thing. But revival, I think, typically is used of reviving that which is dead. So if you have that which is spiritually dead, what you really need is conversion. Amen. And I was looking at Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, I believe, functions like uh, Bob has mentioned, much like a sign in an empty elevator shaft where it warns people not to go there lest they perish, and only the elect will heed it. The elect we know from John 10, 27 through 28 can never lose their salvation. So if they are in error or they are in sin, they can repent like David did, but they are not going from salvation to being spiritually dead to salvation again. That's, a not, that's not a biblical category. So when we look at, for example, Hebrews 6, 4, the writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Wow, good reading. So it seems that revival in the sense of taking apostates and bringing them back according to the Spirit-inspired scriptures is an impossible act. And so, therefore, I would question the whole endeavor of revivalism in that regard. That's a good reading. That's a very good reading. So if you have an if the church is an institution and the institution is apostate, it's not coming back. Go ahead, uh, Luann, and then... Uh, Well, with what you were just saying, I mean, I think of Peter. Oh, my goodness. Peter was told, you are going to deny Christ. And what did he do? He did. But he was restored. He wasn't apostate. Yes, in the back, over here. Um, I'm sorry. I had, I wanted to comment on. Uh, I'm just, I, I have a very simple goal here, define the church. Once we define the church, I think that if the church is defined biblically, it doesn't need to be revived because it's alive. You can only revive that which is dead. And if you're dead, you're disconnected from Christ. And if you're disconnected from Christ, you're not the church. Christ is the head of the church, not the head of the dead. Amen. So the whole idea of revival, in my opinion, in the English language, 
is it probably what we're even talking about? Go ahead. So I was having the same thoughts as Pastor Eric that, you know, revivals are exciting, they're emotional, people love that kind of thing. You look what happened at, is it Ashbury or whatever, that big thing yeah. that happened. Was there any conversions? Because that's what this is about. We want conversion. And I sure do not want to be revived back to the cult of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and there's a bonus for people who bring people back to Catholicism. They're promised they'll have more chance of getting out of purgatory, whatever. So they're really hot on the trail of trying to revive oh, yeah. the, <laughs> the... They're beckoning you know, people back to Rome. Yes. And they have ex-Protestant evangelicals who are in charge of reconverting people yeah. back into Rome. Yeah, it's and a big, it's a big movement. And, yes. um, and just this whole thing, they're going to get these bonus points, you know. So for me, it's like, it's about conversion. Yes. It, it, and that's what we need, Convert, converted souls. We need conversion. And there's nothing wrong with bringing a preacher in to a local church to preach the gospel uh, children of Christians may believe at that point uh, there's, there's things like that that happen but we need to keep our categories within what's defined in the scripture I'm just telling you Kennedy says the only revival in the, in the New Testament it was at Pentecost after that you nurtured the churches yes well I'm just going to read a definition from the King James um, version uh, King James definition of revival and it says to return to life to recover life the soul of the child came into him and again revived him from 1st Kings and Romans 14 to recover new life or vigor to be re re uh, to be reanimated after depression uh, for, here's an instance. For instance, when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived to recover from a state of neglect, oblivion, obs obscurity, or depression. Learning revived. Okay, that. Um, in, uh, and then I guess that's enough. But that's, I guess, I don't believe it's com uh, truly being revived from death. Um, I can say for myself, I need revival at times. I need to be revived in my spirit. And, and, and because we all go through those times in life where we need to be revived. And I'm not spiritually dead, but I need, I need to be revived in my spirit. Okay. And, and, uh, and I don't think it's just death. It's we all need us, uh, to be revived at one time or another in our lives. There are terms for that in the New Testament, like encourage, uh, exhortation, comfort, admonition the various things that we have as ministries to get us back where we should be when we're not doing as well as we should. Exhortation. Yeah, but uh, let me, that's a good point. You mentioned in the Old Testament, here's something that I think Kennedy has right that I will help us. Israel, it was indeed in, an institution and it was instituted as a nation by Yahweh okay for the purpose of carrying forth the promise of Abram Abraham Isaac Jacob David the promises on forward so that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem he recited those promises and scriptures about Israel so Israel often needed to be revived and that's what prophets did and so what I notice, and here's the alternative to Kennedy's view. I'm just about finished this. You notice all, every page marked up, I'm going to review this. Discipling Nations by Daryl Miller. Very popular book, who bases everything on his version of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Now his assumption is you can disciple pagans, and they can stay pagans, but they're disciples. But they don't, he doesn't tell you that's what he's saying, but that's what it boils down. It's post-millennial. Here's the difference. Israel was an institution, and it did need to be revived. It was sent into captivity, brought back to life when, after captivity, and there was a purpose for that. But the ultimate institution 
will not be even close to what it's supposed to be until the millennium. Is that my off base, Eric? Go ahead and comment. You know, you're right. You're teaching about this on YouTube right now. You know, I think a good illustration of the institutional nature of Israel is looking at circumcision. Every eight-day-old baby was circumcised, and that did not guarantee them belief. In the New Testament, the Reformed tradition sees a relationship between baptism and circumcision. What Bob and I react to and reject is the one-to-one relationship because the New Testament community, the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of believers, is uniquely those who are regenerated, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they are baptized as a pictorial representation of what happened. While you can have literally millions of Israelites who were circumcised who remain spiritually dead. Right. The idea behind baptism is it's those who profess and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who are to be baptized, I believe, according to the New Testament. Right. So that's where it breaks down. Like Bob said, the institution of Israel was given to the world to protect, in some sense, even the lineage of the Messiah. Amen. You had to have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and then you have the Messiah come. Once he comes, the lineage isn't important. Now you have the one new man, Jews and Gentiles, intermingling. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. So Bob is correct that that institution of Israel had to be correct or protected for a time. And it was circumcision, it was Sabbath keeping, and it was the food laws that made Israel so eccentric they could never really mingle with the Gentile world. Right. And there's a promised revival. It's called the millennium. Yes, the millennium. Amen. Right. Okay, now... The church isn't the same as Israel, unlike what Reformed theology claims. Now, let me just give a little more of this, and I'm back to this slide here. Uh, Kennedy's material, hardly anybody knows about this. It's a minority report, but I think it's biblical. He says this, the difficulty is that the gift of the evangelist is much more readily accepted than the gift of the teacher. The born-again Christian views with no prejudice the preaching of redemption, but deep-rooted prejudice and traditional loyalties may often be touched by the teaching of the word. So we dismiss the teaching that offends, holding to evangelism and our prejudices as well, says Kennedy, making the manifestation of the church impossible. In other words, define biblically. One more paragraph. Evangelism or revival, he says, must find its consummation in the church. The church must be founded on the living word, Christ. The organized church of Christendom, therefore, cannot be accepted as fate accompli in the place of what the written word so clearly reveals. He's claiming the organized church of Christendom is not the church of the Bible. If we accept the institutional church is the church, then the siren call back to Rome will get louder and louder, and evangelicals will apostatize and go become the evangelists, drawing folks back to Rome. Come back to your mother. Come back to the mothership. And... We have billions of adherents. We've been doing this for many centuries. And why are you messing around with all this pathetic stuff you have that you call evangelicalism? And thus, they go on their way. Now, what I don't understand is why they don't just become business people and don't go to church. If you're not going to serve Christ, why go to Rome? Just go to the business seminar and enjoy your yacht. Go ahead. You can have a yacht, by the way. I'm not a lawgiver. I have a 16-foot fishing boat, but, you know, go ahead. It's like you have said so many times, Bob, the further you get from Scripture, the Word of God, the more pagan you become, and that's Rome. Yeah, pagan, pagan is the default position. What he pointed out, by the way, Quickly, and I'll get back to where we are. The second epistle of Paul to Timothy is of immense significance for the present age. 
Here's my thesis. Thank you for all your comments. I'm not asking people to agree. I want to make sure our, we've covered the bases and we're helping people. Uh, and we need to have people critique us. Uh, here's my position. The New Testament defines the church, not church history. Okay? Because there were no more apostles appointed by Christ after the death of the apostle John. So may he lived as long as we believe he did. And therefore, whoever after that has to go back to the scripture, not back to the traditions in church history. Yes, Susie. I think, too, it's just a matter of when we say revival or we say it even to unbelievers, they're thinking of those giant groups getting together, all that emotional stuff. And when, when you, Bill, when you gave the definition, it's talking about reviving something dead. So when you're needing refreshment, or I am, um, I think about, like, Psalm 51 that says, renew a right heart of me and a, a new, you know, re revive, renew my spirit. Because we do have times we're dry, we're kind of in a desert, whatever. And so we need that. And even though one of those was reviving a, a dead boy or whatever, it didn't mean he was a saved person. But I think that's where there's confusion is what does revival mean to people? They're not thinking conversion all the time, but that's just the thought I have. Okay, let's see if we can finish this slide here. I think in three weeks we should get through a slide. <laughs> now, uh, thank you for every, thank you everyone. I love hearing the, the word of God talked about in issues and definitions. So my claim is the church are those born of the spirit, attached to the head and to one another by Christ. And that the offices in the church they're defined in the New Testament are elders and deacons. No more than that. And the church gatherings are always local. And that I would say from 1 Corinthians 14 and elsewhere, the exception is an unconverted person comes into the congregation, which is certainly welcome. But that's why we should all prophesy. That's what we're doing here. You didn't know it, but that's what we're doing. We're sharing the faith once for all, handed down to the saints, what it, what it means to be attached to the head. I think the argument against the institutional church is so powerful and needed and timely that it can be um, defended. It will not be a way to sell books because 98% of Christendom, whether evangelical or otherwise, is part of institutions. So any pastor that promoted a book would be shooting himself in the foot because the institution is what exists. But you should know, if you follow politics, you should know what institutions do. They do everything they can to survive like weeds in the garden. They're going to try to prevail. And the institution will fight to keep itself powerful, whether it has anything to do with why it ever existed. And eventually, it will have a total different agenda than the founders of the institution. And if we don't know that, we haven't followed politics. Because even in our own country, we see that institutions that were set up to limit the power of the institution are seeing what they call the deep state undermine the will of the people that elect officials. Amen. <clears throat> I say that by way of illustration. If you think that doesn't happen with churches, as institutional churches, you don't understand institutions. Now, here we go. What happens now when this plays out? The last sentence here, or the last number of phrases, constant friction between men. Now, here's the fruit of this. Between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who, here's the last line, 
Who supposed that godliness is a mean of, means of gain? Here is the final fruit of not holding fast to the head, advocating false doctrine, having bad fruit that doesn't come from the spirit, wanting power for power's sake. In the end, what you end up with is right there. Suppose that godliness, you see, BL, piety is a means of gain. Power, money, influence is the goal of that sort of thing. That's the point. Bigger, more powerful, more money, and it becomes self-perpetuating. They suppose that um, godliness is a means of gain. And that is exactly what's being taught. The ads on TV are promoting it. Oh, we mentioned this. Someone called our home that I talked to before uh, about this ad that I saw where they're saying multiplying wealth in order to have a kingdom impact. Yeah, I found it, we found out from the guy that called who goes to the church where it's hell, which is up here in Eden Prairie. He said, the good tickets are $500. Wow. And he was going to call to ask if Jessica and I would be able to go to research it. Uh, no, I don't think so. But you can get cheap seats for 35 each. But I already know, see, I already know what the teaching is. Supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Do you believe that the kingdom of God defined biblically needs money to have an impact? Look at the impact of Saul of Tarsus converted now Paul in prison in Rome writing to Timothy. Look at the impact. Did Paul ever once call before Festus Agrippa appealing to Rome? He's on the ship. He's a prisoner given rented quarters eventually. People could come and go. He had powerful impact. But did he ever tell people that wealth is a means of gain? Did he ever tell Agrippa, you know, I think I got a plan whereby you can wipe out poverty in your kingdom. <laughs> Why didn't he say that? What happened when Paul was testifying between, one time, shared his, he said, you, in the King James, I have it memorized, thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. And he said, not only, I wish not only you, but all of Cypher's chains were like me. Yes, turn to Christ. Whoever you are, wealthy, poor, powerful, weak, old, young, influential, not influential, significant, seemingly insignificant, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You're rescued from God's wrath, born of the Holy Spirit, given gifts and fruit of the Spirit, put into the family of God. And no matter how you were, no matter how nasty you were, and how people couldn't stand you, God will start changing your life. And there'll be an Ananias, not the bad one, but a good one in Acts 9, who didn't even want to pray for Paul. Because he said, Lord, this guy wants to kill us. But what did the Lord say to him? I'm sending you to him. He's one of ours. He's one of mine. Immediately converted. Now he's part of the church. Do you suppose that godliness is a means of gain? Or do you believe that godliness, Eusebius in the Greek, is a means of being conformed to the image of Christ, having the gift of eternal life, and be having an eternal relationship with him, and being partaker of the marriage supper of the Lamb when it comes, and uh, to be part of the family of God. And I appreciate the evangelists and the updates that we get. The evangelists go into wherever they are. Someone said, if you don't like what's going on in Minnesota, why, why do you still live here? I said, well, God called me to preach to sinners, and Minnesota's got great plenty of them. <laughs> the, Paul didn't look for Zion, Illinois, to go set up headquarters. He went to jail in Rome. Okay, so let's... Uh, Please uh, just keep searching the scripture. Don't take any disagreement as me saying I don't want to hear 
ideas because they're all important. But we want to together get grounded in the scriptures. You'll never be disappointed that the fruit of the spirit showed up in your life. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. I need more of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness that you've allowed us who were former enemies hostile to you to look into these glorious things, to be converted, to be part of your family, and to be joined to you and to one another. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches your word to us. May we open our hearts to hear and to believe and to live accordingly. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.